All right. Welcome, everyone, to the Yogic Studies Podcast. I'm your host, Seth Powell. This is episode 42. Today, we are joined by Dr. Samuel Grimes, who is currently the Shinjo Ito Postdoctoral Fellow in Buddhist Studies at the University of California, Berkeley. Sam, welcome to Yogic Studies. Great to have you here. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, are you you're in Berkeley right now? Yes, I'm in California, in Berkeley, on a sunny November day. Beautiful. Yeah, well, I'm just a couple hours north of you, as we were just discussing. But uh, we probably will meet, not in California for the first time, but all the way in San Antonio, it sounds like, at the right. up- yeah. upcoming AAR conference. Um, so yeah, we haven't met yet, but I think we were introduced by a mutual friend and colleague in Ben Williams. Um, remind me, uh, how do you know Ben? Um, I first met Ben actually over the phone maybe 10 years ago. I called and asked him some questions about Abhinavagupta, but we were introduced through uh, our friend John Nimick, who was my advisor at Virginia. We read um, some Shiva texts together, and then Ben came and gave a talk at Virginia where I met him. Nice. Yeah. Well, Ben and I overlapped at Harvard and have become good friends and colleagues, and he, of course, taught for us uh, at Yogic Studies on on Shaiva Tantra. So um, that was a great connection for us. And uh, yeah, it's been nice to connect and to learn more about your your work. I had I had actually seen uh, I think that article that you wrote on um, looking at Sanskritic Buddhist texts in relationship to the Amrita City. Right. Yeah. Which I hope to talk about with you here today. Um, so I was, I was familiar a bit with your work through that. Um, but I think you, as you know, at yogic studies, um, you know, we previously had two different platforms, yogic studies and then Buddhist studies online. And we decided to merge them together to create one happy, holistic platform, um, looking broadly at really South Asian religious traditions, um, but at the core, you know, we're looking at, you know, at yoga, um, and then we have, you know, a full curriculum in Buddhist studies developing as well. So I was excited when we, you know, kind of broached the topic of this course, because it's obviously the most happy medium between yoga studies and Buddhist studies, which is yoga in Buddhism. Right. Um, and we have had some courses looking at that from different angles. Previously, we had Karen O'Brien Kopp teach a course on classical yoga of Patanjali and Yogacara Buddhism, Mm -hmm. kind of looking at um, what is classical yoga philosophy and looking at Sankhya and Buddhist philosophy. Uh, And then we also had Ian Baker come on and and look at um, yoga through some of those Vajrayana Tibetan uh, tantric materials, which I imagine there's some overlap with the kind of work that you do, um, but also probably distinct in other ways as well. Um, so tell us a little bit about uh, your background and uh, the work and, and, and research that you do. Um, yeah, I mean, I can, let me give you an abridged version. Um, I first became interested in Buddhism when I was an undergrad, and I went to Thailand and ordained as a novice monk for a very short period of time in a program called monk for a month that existed for 
I don't know, not even a year. And then um, I went to University of Hawaii where I was, I first encountered Sanskrit and I did an MA there. And it was there that I was first exposed to um, Abhinavagupta and Tantra and um, Pratyabhidya. And I wanted to keep studying that. And I was told that Mr. Kashmir Shaivism was Alexis Sanderson. So I went to Oxford, but um, he was retiring in, in a year. So I did an infill there. I worked with him. And then once he was gone, I started working with Peter Santo and sort of like transitioned more back in the Buddhism direction. And I ended up editing a portion of a text with Peter, which was a or is a commentary on the Chanda Maharoshana Tantra called the Padmavati. And um, I was uh, for like two or three years, cycle years, every PhD program that I applied to rejected me. So um, I went and lived in Nepal and I had already established a relationship with the um, Chantric priesthood in Nepal, the Vajracharyas and the Shakyas. And I just continued that relationship. I requested initiation and ritual training, and um, I was very graciously granted ritual training, followed by some necessary initiations to perform some of the rituals that I was doing publicly. And um, so that's sort of a very abridged version of how I got in the Vajrayana direction. And then as far as yoga goes, that is far more... Um, I don't know, karmic, shall we say, when Jim Mallinson started reading Amrita City with Peter at Oxford, I just happened to be there. And I asked Peter, can I come when Jim comes? And Jim said, yes, sure, come. So I just sat in when they went through the text. Um, Anand Venkat Krishna would come, sometimes Paul Gersmeyer, um, Jason Birch, some other people. But that's really how I was introduced to Hatha Yoga. And then in, in like a serious way, and um, also how I found out that the University of Virginia had a lot of Sanskrit at it because Jim went and gave a talk there that spring and Anand went there for a job interview the same spring and indicated to me that there were four or five Sanskritists there. I thought it was a Tibetan studies place and now it's become like a pretty, pretty substantial South Asian studies place. And so I applied to work there with John Nimick, who's a textualist and and did my PhD there. And now I'm at um, UC Berkeley working on late Indic Vajrayana and Newar Buddhism, especially with Alex von Rajput, who works on Nepalese Buddhism. Wow. Okay. So there was a lot there and you did a yeah. great job of abridging many years of arduous travels and practice and, like and study years and training. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I want to just follow up on two, you know, kind of main threads there. One is that you've received um, kind of traditional philological training. It sounds like mostly in Sanskrit. Uh, yes. Or what? What languages do you do you work with? Sanskrit and Newar, um, and then some classical Tibetan. But I would not claim strong proficiency in Tibetan by any means. Okay, we'll come back to Newar because I want to. I want to hear more about that. Um, but then the other part of it, which I'm sure listeners would, would would be fascinated to hear a little bit more about, is that you've actually received some initiation by these Vajracharya priests, uh, mm -hmm. in, you said, in, in Nepal. Yes. Um, so I was going to ask you about this later, but since it came up now, just tell us a little bit more about how that time on the ground, working with living tantric Buddhist traditions in Nepal 
how that kind of informs your scholarship and and um, and your understanding of the tradition. And just actually, maybe you can just start by just telling us a little bit about that living tradition. Yeah, so Newar Buddhism is um, the Buddhism which is practiced by the, the indigenous people of the Kathmandu Valley of Nepal, the Newars, and it's the only form of Mahayana Buddhism that still exists in its unbroken tradition that conducts all liturgy in Sanskrit and all rituals are done in Sanskrit. So if one was to call something Indian Buddhism, although I would be hesitant to do that, Newar Buddhism is the only um, sort of living, unbroken tradition of Indian Buddhism, and it's in Nepal, it's not in India, so that's why I would be hesitant to call it Indian Buddhism. Maybe S- Sanskritic Buddhism is why the article you mentioned, I I called it that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my experience with Newar's is that, um, versus a kind of philological perspective, is that in a philological, I don't want to get myself in trouble here, but in a philological uh, way of doing things, the testimony of living practitioners today is not really regarded as particularly valuable when evaluating texts from the medieval period, for example, or from from even earlier than that. But um, I found that the the Buddhism that I encountered from my Newar teachers was exactly the same as the Buddhism in pre-modern texts that I was looking at. And so much so is this the case that, just to give an anecdote, a year ago at Cal, we were reading through a, a Tibetan ritual booklet from Dunhuang um, in what's in now China from the ninth or 10th century. And we were trying to figure out the mudras that were being described and we couldn't really figure them out. And so I just brought in a video that I had of a Newar girl doing dances and she mm. did all those mudras and we would watch her do the mudras and then read the description and we could tell what the mudras were supposed to be based on watching a modern video of someone dancing and doing it. So it's really like an unbroken tradition for more than a thousand years. Wow, that's that's pretty incredible. Um, so you mentioned it's the only Sanskritic Buddhist tradition that is still living today. Can you say a little bit more about what that means? Like yeah, compared to I mean, compared to it, other forms of, of Buddhism, right, right. That I mean, people so, might be more familiar with, right. Buddhism originated, you know, in South Asia, and it flourished there for quite a long time, um, but it sort of ceased to exist as an effective institutional religion by like roughly the year 1200 CE. I mean, there's Buddhism still carried on in what's now India for into at least the 16th century. But as far as like a viable, robust institution, that was gone by 1200 CE. And a lot of the um, very prominent monastics basically fled into the Kathmandu Valley as refugees. And, you know, why do they do that? Well, um, the death of Buddhism in India is kind of a 500-year death um, that ended around 1200, but it really starts in in the 8th century, in my opinion. This is my theory. Um, and it's because it so heavily was driven by money, by, by mercantile uh, trade routes and money that would go through Central Asia, especially through the city of Balkh, which is now in Afghanistan, which formed a kind of like T, Balkh at the top, and then going down into South Asia. 
all this money flowed into South Asia and the Tibetan and Tang empires were at war with one another in that corridor in the eighth century. And that caused major disruptions to cash flow. And also the Abbasid Caliphate was founded in, um, in bulk in, in the eighth century as well. And once, so like the kind of main Buddhist city in the eighth century, early 8th century in Central Asia became the site of where the Abbasid Caliphate started, and they just redirected all the money to Baghdad. And so the Buddhism just kind of got weaker and weaker and weaker in India, and by um, the late uh, 11th century, it just kind of dried up. And so there was no safe, viable institution for these monastics, so they fled up into the Nepal Valley, and there was already a robust tantric tradition there, and through lots of negotiations in the 13th century, they would eventually produce what's now Newar Buddhism. Yeah, I know it's a somewhat contested topic, right, about why Buddhism declined or, or died in India. Um, so that that's a really interesting theory. I actually hadn't heard it described in that exact way before. Um, yeah. And it was also one important thing is that the location of these major Buddhist institutions like Nalanda and Vikramashila were basically in a frontier between what would eventually become the Delhi Sultanate and um, the Pala and then eventually the Sena domains. And so when armies were going back and forth or when bandits were moving back and forth, these institutions were just in like the worst possible place. So it just wasn't possible to run a kind of, you know, you can't have a university in the middle of a war zone. It just doesn't really work too well. And so that that also led to a lot of people leaving with, I think, the expectation that they would one day return, and they just simply never did. Mm. And so it's around this time that then this type of Indic or Sanskritic Buddhism begins to flourish in Nepal, or was there already do you think institutionalized forms of Buddhism there in Nepal, we should, we should acknowledge that actually the, the historical sites surrounding what we think of as the historical Buddha are, are in the Kathmandu Valley. Is that right? No. So they're in Nepal, but they're not in the Kathmandu Valley. So that would be Lumbini where the Buddha was born. And um, a couple of us do where he lived and grew up, um, which actually now are in Nepal, but until the early 19th century, that would have been, um, mm. it would, it, Nepal was really only the Kathmandu Valley, and it was conquered by the Gorkha king Prithvanarayan Shah in 17, in the late 1700s, and um, all of his kingdoms kind of came together, and he called it Nepal. Um, but yeah, you do have a lot of sites in, um, in Nepal though that are said to have been frequented by different Buddhas, just not Shakyamuni Buddha. Mm. Yeah. And so when when does this Newar Buddhism then really begin to take off? That's a good question. And we're having a conference here in Berkeley actually in March to start to kind of explore this question. Um, based on the information that I currently have, I would say that it starts to come around in the first decades of the 13th century. And if you really want to mark out the birth of Newar Buddhism, it's in a text called the Kriya Samuchaya by Jagadarpana, 
which is basically a ritual encyclopedia. Um, and it's mostly not original. It's mostly things he's pulled in and he's, he's put together this text with some new things, um, added, but, but more or less, it's a large compendium of existing Vajrayana rites for like installing temples, installing images, giving initiation to people, um, all kinds of practical things. And, and I would say that the Kriyasamuchaya, which is still of critical importance, um, in Newar Buddhism is really kind of like the foundational text for Newar Buddhism. It's in Sanskrit. It's entirely in Sanskrit. Um, Jagadarpana was from Nepal. Did he speak a Newaric language? Who knows? But the the text really marks is kind of like a watershed moment because it involves a lot of negotiation with monks that have come up from India recently. So most of the core texts, as you've mentioned, uh, are in Sanskrit, but you've also mentioned you work with Newari language and materials. Yes. Uh, tell us a bit about that language. Is that is it the same as what is contemporary, you know, modern spoken Nepali, or is uh, w what's the relationship there? So Nepali and Newar um, are not the same. Uh, Nepali is an Indo-European language derived from Sanskrit, um, whereas Newar is has been classed as a Sino-Tibetan language. There's been arguments about its classification. I'm not qualified to comment on what language family it's in. But um, Nepali was not called Nepali until the 1970s. It was previously called Gorkali or Kus or Kassia, um, which is, uh, originated in the west of what's now Nepal. Uh, it was renamed Nepali in the 1970s as part of an explicit campaign to eliminate all other languages in Nepal by the government. Um, and to outlaw teaching them in schools and things like that. So they renamed it Nepali as an attempt to kind of flatten out other languages. Um, Newar is called Nepal Bahasa, you know, like the, ne the Nepal language. And the word Newar, um, which is spelled Newa in, in how it's pronounced in Newar, probably derives from Nepal, which is, mm. of course, the place. So it's a good question. And it's a very convoluted answer and situation. But in a nutshell, it's called Nepali because the government started calling that in the 70s. And it's a different language from Newar. I do not know Nepali, but I do know Newar, which is a, a shock to many people in Nepal. They can't they can't wrap their heads around. Why would you why would you want to learn Newar and not Nepali? But so what kind of materials are in Newar? Is it Newar or Newari? You can, um, that's another <laughs> thing. Newari is often seen as kind of like an Anglicization of it. And so a lot of young Newars prefer to call it Newar. Mm. Um, some call it Newa and they write a colon like to represent a Visarga because Newar actually uses Visargas. Um, but, um, yeah, Newar is fine, or Newari. I mean, I say Newar, but there's not like a a governing body out there that's saying which is which. But there is a lot in Newar. Um, the Newar culture is a very literature-heavy culture. Um, there's lots of Buddhist literature in Newar. There's newspapers in Newar. Newar is actually banned in Nepal. It was illegal to print in ne Newar for about 50 years in the early uh, from the end of the 19th century until 
about 1940s. Um, and so there's all these like secretly printed Newar poems and plays and stories and things that were printed on presses in people's homes. And, and so you may have also gathered that Newars have been rather marginalized in recent history, um, basically since the kingdom was overthrown in the, in the late 18th century. And why is that? That is because the um, new kingdom, the the Gorkas, the Saha kings, um, very much wanted to kind of establish their Hindu credentials, and they very strongly emphasized the Hindu identity of their kingdom. And there's a myriad of reasons for why they did that, but one of the effects was that the Buddhist institution lost a lot of resources and um, a lot of patrons actually who would previously go to Buddhist priests for their rituals and they were mm. made to go to Brahmins. And then in the, um, the mid 19th century, the um, Rana oligarchy began, which was set the Kings as kind of puppet leaders. And the Ranas were these dictators that took over and they further emphasized the Hindu identity of the kingdom. They're the ones that banned printing in Newar. Um, and so it just kind of got worse and worse and worse and worse until the 50s when the Ranas abdicated. Um, but then a regime began in the late 50s, the Panchayat regime, which was also overtly Hindu, which didn't end until um, the Civil War in the early 1990s. So Newar Buddhism has been under the gun figuratively and literally for nearly 200 years or more than 200 years, I guess. And it's, but very recently, there's been a huge revival in Newar Buddhism. Mm. Fascinating. Well, I mean, I'd love to keep talking about Newar Buddhism, but I do want to get to the, our broader topic uh, today, which is the subject of your upcoming online course at Yogic Studies, which is Yoga in Buddhism. Mm. Um, I believe you'll be looking at these Newar Buddhist traditions in the course. Yes, yeah. in one um, of the modules, yes. Yeah, so we'll, we'll we'll get more into that, perhaps as this pertains to as yoga in Newar Buddhism. But let's think uh, more broadly now about this topic of yoga in Buddhism. Needless to say, this is a huge topic. Uh, we could spend right. many, yeah. many hours discussing uh, these terms. Um, and of course, the question of the relationship between, you know, or the role of yoga in Buddhism really depends on how we understand the term uh, yoga. Mm -hmm. So just maybe briefly to get us started here, how, how does the early Buddhist tradition understand yoga? Was the Buddha a yogi? Um, I can't speak to the Pali, but certainly the later tradition, he's, there's the famous Ye Dharma Hetu shloka where he's the maha shramana so he's coming out of the shramana movement um which is what yoga arguably came out of as well um would he be called a yogi in the earliest tradition i can't answer that question um but i can say that yoga by the beginning of the first millennium would be meditation contemplation meditation which I'll look at um, in the first module because there's there's so many different methods of meditation and and um, 
kind of benchmarks that a person can reach in meditation and goals to head towards. Um, and I am going to briefly talk about that, but I really want to zero in on visualization forms of meditation because that is the form of meditation that becomes so prevalent in Tantra and that eventually the current theory is that Hatha Yoga in many ways is a kind of rebellion against that um, a kind of meditation, purely contemplative practice, purely mental practice versus a kind of like physical practice. Mm -hmm. So um, that is not a great answer. The answer being, I don't know if the Buddha was called a yogin or a yogi in the earliest period, but certainly the practices that he advocated and, and pushed um, in the earliest period would be called bhavana meditation or dhyana would be considered yoga. Right. I think you hit on some key points there, which is that he's he's typically associated with this early shramana movement, which is sort of seen as um, kind of extra Vedic or beyond the kind of uh, emergent Brahminical traditions. Um, but of course, you know, still very much a, a part of that dominant cultural milieu but these ascetic and renunciate traditions that were emerging outside of that, you know, around 2,500 years ago. Um, the Pali texts might not use the term yoga or yogi, but if we understand yoga to be some sort of ascetic or renunciate body-mind disciplining or contemplation meditation, I think as, as you said, Probably the, the terms dhyana or jhana in Pali are probably more relevant than yoga uh, at that time. Um, but in those ways, if you understand yoga and yogis as those ascetics who are engaging in that, those bodily forms of you know self-regulation and discipline, then then maybe then maybe the Buddha was. Well, um, there's also um you know, there's there's the historical period when, let's say, that the Buddha was alive. And if we want to get as close as we can to determining what terminology was used at that time, but there's also later traditions who are looking back themselves and they're putting terminology mm -hmm. on a situation that may not have used that terminology. Um, and so certainly later traditions would call... And especially in in like the late Vajrayana texts in the in the tantras themselves, the discourses of various Buddhas, uh, Shakyamuni Buddha is certainly engaged in yoga. Mm. Um, and uh, especially comes to mind like um, the first this kind of transitional tantra into the yoga tantra, the Sarva Tathagata Tattva Samgraha begins with Shakyamuni Buddha. Uh, although there, I think he's um, service servarta city or i think he's servarta city there but he's doing all this yoga and it's it's a it's a new twist on the life story of the buddha where he's this great yogin so the later tradition has its own views on this as well yeah yeah i think a big theme that's emerged in yoga studies i would really say in the last decade although this has been known for a century or, or more in, in, in Indology, but it's really, I think, come to light even more so, um, is that I think in several key moments of yoga's history, Buddhism plays a really foundational role. 
in what is oftentimes thought of as a more Shaiva or Hindu, you know, yoga tradition, two kind of key historical moments and moments of textual codification I'm, I'm thinking of is the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, uh, which we know are heavily indebted to Shramana traditions like Buddhism, Yogacara Buddhism in particular, but also Jainism, um, the Yamas and Niyamas, for example. Um, very Patanjali is very much um, engaged with Buddhist philosophical discourse um, uh, and debate, frankly, especially in the, in the Bhashya, if we accept Patanjali as the author of the Bhashya. Um, but nonetheless, that, that tradition very much engaged um, with, with Buddhism. Um, and so there, this, this kind of key codification of yoga philosophy uh fourth fifth century there's a key moment where buddhism is very much involved uh, and then later with hatha yoga um we know from the work of malinson and santo which you brought up uh, before uh, the importance of a text like the amrita siddhi which they identify as the earliest text to teach the methods of hatha yoga uh, teaching these bandhas and, and pranayama even though it doesn't use the term hatha yoga that would be introduced you know, slightly later, uh, but nonetheless, this this key tantric Buddhist text. Um, so both yoga of Patanjali and later medieval Hatha yoga, both being very very influenced, um, you know, by by these different streams of Buddhism. Um, so yeah, I wonder if you just have any general thoughts about. You know, because, yeah, just in general, I think that the the common narrative of the history of yoga is that it is a more Hindu-focused tradition, right. or depending on how you define Hinduism, um, right. more Brahminical. Um, and yet, in these really two key moments of classical yoga of Patanjali and medieval Hatha yoga, uh, Buddhism is, is right there. Um, Right. Yeah. I mean, one thing that is critical to bear in mind when you're looking at something that is arguably on the fringe of mainstream religious practice is that you're seeing a tiny fraction of of this of the tradition of the situation that when you're when a, a lot of things when you're looking at texts, especially in a language like Sanskrit, you're really looking at the literature of the elite. Um, why was the Amrita city even composed? You know, what's why would someone who's rejecting this elite culture and this these ritual practices take the time to compose a text in Sanskrit? Why would they not just talk amongst themselves? Maybe they had been talking amongst themselves for a century before someone decided to write it down. Um, and so that's where you can't track these these kind of sectarian identities is in in the middle where we just frankly we don't have any evidence for for what happened and there's ways to to try and uncover that evidence um whether it's archaeological evidence whether it's looking at things in texts that are kind of incidental to the text that the author is mentioning because it's just part of everyday life and it's not really of interest to the audience at the time. But then when we're looking at it now, it's like, wow, that's a 
quite interesting thing about everyday life. Uh, that's why I have some, I have a comedy as one of the readings for the course, because there's all these descriptions of a female practitioner of yoga, but that's not the funny part. So that's setting up other situations, which then tells you, okay, well, that means that there were female practitioners of yoga who were doing yoga on their own. Um, but all the texts that we have are written by men. They're largely written for men and they're produced out of a very elite environment. I mean, the, the percentage of people who could read and write Sanskrit must have been a hundredth of a percent or something like that. So, um, we're we're only scratching the surface and we will only ever be able to scratch the surface uh as far as looking at these various interactions and trying to determine why these practices came about and the, and the development that was necessary for that to happen yeah you raise good points there you know especially as buddhism becomes more institutionalized um you have these great monastic centers of learning, and I think where a lot of these texts were likely produced. Um, so talk a little bit about um, within the history of India and, and maybe into Nepal, um, just this divide between kind of monastic um, institutional Buddhism and then what we might call a householder or lay Buddhism. And in particular, thinking about this question of monastics versus lay practitioners in regards to the to the place of yoga within Buddhism, um, who you're describing how the, the texts, especially in Sanskrit, are written by, you know, elite, highly educated, probably Buddhist monks. Um, we're generalizing here, but um, if yoga is being discussed you know who who's that yoga for do you do you think on the ground that there was uh yoga practices that were being uh taught to say you know householders or or lay buddhists so um how do you yeah how do we approach that's this a good question. question i mean the best i'll just also say well it's on my mind that the the best thing written on this to date is a phd or defil dissertation by isabel onions um, tantric Buddhist apologetics, but, um, yeah, it's, so there are a lot of elite monastic texts that take a very long time and go really far to explain how you can get the highest tantric initiations without actually doing any sexual practices. And why are they spending such a long time to make this point? Well, what that would imply that there were people who were doing these sexual practices and that these monks were in competition with them. And, you know, if, what does that mean that they're in competition with them? That means that like what you're saying, these lay people are perhaps seeking out the audience of, um, of these kind of fringe tantric yogins rather than the monks. Um, we also are starting to very slowly get evidence of, um, texts that seem to be guides for giving sermons in Sanskrit. Um, Peter Santo has published some things on a text he tentatively calls Saddharma Parikata, which is seems to be, um, like I said, just sermons and Sanskrit notes for how to give, you know, ideas for giving a sermon, very similar to today in a Protestant church. Um, ministers have books that are 
have ideas for sermons and kind of guides to give different sermons. And well, who, you know, who was giving that? Was it a monk? Probably it was a monk, but the situation was very dynamic and very complex. And as far as, you know, you could compare it maybe to Tibet today, where there's lots of people that are monks, but do they adhere to all the rules of their Vinaya tradition? Not necessarily. Um, then there's people like Nakpas who are initiated non-lay people, but they're not monks, but they're also not lay people. Then you have lay people. Um, and then in Nepal, you have a very complex situation where there are no celibate sanghas, but there are every temple is called a vihara. And the members of that temple periodically will become monks to take offerings and and they'll shave their heads at certain times and they get certain initiations. And so um, this is a very long say way of saying that that is not a question that's really possible to answer, but we can definitely speculate about it and kind of explore, which always irritates undergraduate students because they want an answer, not like to kind of muse about history, but, but I hope that that's some kind of answer. Yeah. Can you tell us just a little bit more, and maybe this will take us into the content of the course, but you know, what, what does yoga look like uh, in terms of you know, conception of yoga and, and yoga practice within these texts and, and, and traditions? Yeah, I mean, in the, the first module that I'll, I'll do, yoga as visualization, yoga, um, I'll start talking about meditation, but I'll quickly transition into looking at these tantric visualization practices. In that case, the yoga is the, um, the, the practitioner visualizing him or herself as a Buddha and they become that Buddha. And that's the yoga. That's the kind of like union, the connection. Um, and so we'll explore, you know, where did that come from? Why would people start internalizing ritual? Why would they start visualizing ritual? Um, and then why would they visualize, you know, like the Homa sacrifice, the fire sacrifice and all these things. Um, but before they do any of these rituals, what's the yoga part about it is that they themselves turn themselves into a Buddha. And, and so the tantras are called the, the first instruct someone to do this are called yoga tantras, which is a, a class of, of Buddhist tantras. So I've pulled up the course website here for those who oh, yeah. are, are watching uh, on YouTube. Um, so module one, as Sam's describing yoga as visualization. Um, yeah, I like, I like how you've set up the course with these four different categories, yoga as visualization, yoga as ritual, yoga as behavior, yoga as postural practice. So tell us a little bit about module two then, yoga as ritual. Yeah, and I also want to say that I took care to make sure that there was as little overlap as possible with other um, courses you have. You mentioned Karen O'Brien Cops course. I have a reading from her, but but we'll try to avoid overlap with hers. And then also things on Amrita City. So I, mm -hmm. I also want to stress that I'm I'm trying as best I can to give new information. Um, but so for yoga as ritual, in the yoga as visualization, we we will look at this sort of like internalization of ritual. Um, where ritual is is purely sublimated into a kind of mental event. And then for yoga as ritual, we will kind of move out of that into physical ritual. We'll look at what Newar Buddhists do, um, who do both physical ritual and the sort of sublimated visualized ritual. Um, we'll consider 
mandala offerings and the importance of the mandala and how a person kind of identifies the mandala and with themselves and this union um, with oneself and the mandala and the Buddha Vajrasattva um, and this kind of non-dual way of, of looking at things. Um, and I, I just want to bring that in, not not just to emphasize the importance of ritual in these yogic practices, um, but also to to shed a light on a on a living tradition that's still doing all this that unfortunately very little is known about their tradition. So I think this would be a nice place to shed a light on that and show this this sort of unbroken lineage into the present of this particular kind of yoga. Um, this will then kind of shoot back in time, but I wanted to look at these characters who are so important in the Vajrayana tradition, the Siddhas, the Mahasiddhas, who are legendary figures who develop Siddhis that is say magical powers through their yoga accomplishments. And I want to explore, um, well, I will explore why their behavior constitutes a form of yoga, a kind of form of practice that gets them closer to awakening, that gets them closer to the goal of nirvana. Um, and that often includes transgressive behavior, that includes um, rejecting social norms in favor of a um, sort of uh, non-dual worldview. And that's really at the core of that yoga as behavior first half of the unit. Um, Sorry, the second half of the unit, but I also want to look at sexual practices because sexual yoga is a is a really critical part of Vajrayana. It's been interpreted in many different ways historically and today. Um, as far as I can tell, there's never been a time where this is how you do it and this is this is wrong. Everyone is somewhere on this spectrum of you should do these practices for real or you should visualize these practices. And so I want to look both at the debates surrounding that and then also look at the two kind of extremes and the theories behind them you know why should you do it for real versus why is it entirely sublimated why should you um not do it for real mm -hmm. yeah and so lastly i will transition into looking at yoga as postural practice and Rather than situate this around the Amrita Siddhi, I want to look at the, um, or uh, again, I will look at the period that seems to lead up to the Amrita Siddhi, which is a period of increased complexity in Vajrayana. The subtle body uh, and subtle anatomy are becoming more and more complex, more and more convoluted, you could say, especially in texts like the Kala Chakra Tantra. And the Amrita Siddhi seems to be a rejection, not just of um, tantric ritual rites, and and um, certain commitments and vows, but also a rejection of this very complicated social bo uh, um, subtle body because the Amrita Siddhi, the subtle anatomy is quite simple. And um, then of course, in Hatha Yoga later on, it becomes quite complex, quite complicated. So it's the Amrita Siddhi represents kind of this middle in the hourglass. It's ironically, it's attempt to become decomplicated eventually it just becomes as complicated as it was before. But I want to look at this transitional period and explore the ideas of um, not just turning all of these mental practices into somatic practices, but also to question, you know, like what would have happened 
totally speculative, but what would have happened if if um if the Buddhist institution remained in India? You know, would this have advanced further? Would it have um, just sort of distilled out into the hinterlands like it kind of did, especially with the not yogins? And so we'll explore all of those ideas. Fantastic. So these are the four modules of the upcoming course, Yoga and Buddhism. Uh, it's going to run live from November 27th through December 22nd, 2023. But if you're watching this later, everything has been recorded and is available for self-study. So thank you, uh, Sam, for that wonderful uh, preview of the course. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, before, before you go though, um, maybe, um, just say a few words of, uh, you know, about the course in general, what are you hoping, you know, that students will take away from such a course? I, my primary goal is to equip people with the, um, tools and information necessary to really dive deeper into an exploration of the subject because, it is an incredibly complex subject. I mean, we have, there's so many yogas that are just not, it's just, just not possible to fit them in. I mean, there's uh, philosophical exegetical schools on the Guhya Samaja Tantra, for example, that would be really interesting to look at. But um, due to the constraints of time, what I want to do is really equip people with the tools, terminology, and knowledge that they would need to make a deeper, more informed dive into information on their own. Yeah, fantastic. Well, and I think this is uh, such a wonderful subject, but you're also giving us such a unique perspective, I think, because of your expertise in Newar Buddhism and, and your connections to these living traditions in Nepal. So for anybody who uh, is interested in these topics that we've covered and just scratched the surface on really in this conversation, uh, we hope that you can join us for this course. Uh, feel free to leave a comment here on YouTube or reach out via email. Um, and hopefully we'll see you in class soon. So thanks again so much, Sam, uh, for your time and, and for offering uh, this great course at Yogic Studies. You're welcome. Thanks for having me.